Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Uh, just as a periodic reminder, uh, if you like these episodes, please subscribe on all the different podcasting services and leave us positive reviews. Um, it's helpful for us to know that someone cares. So today our guest is Matt Iglesias, who is a writer and uh, co-founder of Vox, and uh, he's the author of Several books. The uh, most recently, which is just out, is One Billion Americans. Uh, so, first off, Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Really glad to be here. So, uh, I like the title of the book in that it is descriptive uh, and evocative. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what it means? What is what is One Billion Americans about? Well, it's about how there should be one billion Americans. Uh, okay, the, the, thank you very much. Thank so it's right, much. it's it's right up there. Uh, I'm not I'm not hiding the ball there. I mean, more broadly, it's about the idea that you know, as we think about America's role in the world and relative decline vis a vis China, we should be thinking about: Are there smart ways for us to increase our population, increase the the rate in which we are adding people to the United States, so that over the long haul we can be confident that even if China continues on a course of economic catch-up, that we maintain a lead, ideally a growing lead in the sort of national aggregates. And the argument to the book is that, um, yes, we can, that Americans have fewer children than they say they would like to have, that there are practical measures we can take that will help narrow that gap, facilitate larger families, that immigration is very beneficial to the United States, that we can make some tweaks to make it more beneficial official, but that we should have more immigrants rather than fewer. Um, Right now, we're on a trajectory to fewer immigrants and fewer babies. I want to turn both of those around. More immigrants, more babies. Uh, Then there are a lot of downstream consequences of that, right? We would need to address housing problems. We need to address transportation infrastructure problems. But I also argue that those problems are an opportunity to create a situation where we revive a lot of cities that have lost population, where we can stabilize rural communities that are losing population right now, that a lot of what's a little bit sort of dysfunctional about America today is that because the overall growth rate is so low, we have a lot of zero-sum aspects to our politics. Uh, you guys are are both in Texas, I gather, which has obviously experienced very fast population growth. Uh, but the way it goes right now is like for there to be a Texas, for Texas to thrive as much as it has, there has to be population loss in Cleveland, in huge swaths of rural America, in huge swaths of the Midwest and the smaller cities of the Northeast. And then at the same time, we have these coastal cities that, you know, in some respects do very well. Uh, they have a lot of big employers. They have high-end jobs there, uh, but they're like choked off with, with a lack of housing supply, a lack of adequate transportation infrastructure. So we tackle all these problems simultaneously. We we have a bigger country, we have a richer country, we have a more powerful country, and hopefully we have a country that can 
find its way back to the sense that we sort of have something important in common as Americans, and we have some common projects that are important to us, even as we disagree about many things. I think that most of our listeners probably like the idea of America remaining number one. Uh, that's probably uh, not everybody. Uh, there are some people who maybe, you know, don't like America, Americans who don't like America or whatever, but it seems like uh, it's probably a general, general uh, positive view. But how is it that increasing more people will keep us number one, right? Mm -hmm. How is that supposed to translate into us, you know, winning economically or strategically or whatever against China or Russia or uh, the Swedes. Well, you know, aggregates matter, right? I mean, you talk about the Swedes and it's funny, right? But like Sweden is a very successful society. Um, they are one of the richest countries in Europe. They have famously left-wing people like a lot of the equality there. Uh, they have some big companies there, right? Skype and, you know, um, sorry, not Skype, uh, Spotify. So it's successful. Like Sweden does a really good job. They're one of the best countries in the world. Uh, Switzerland is also really good. New Zealand is great. Great. Uh, but these are really small countries, right? They don't matter internationally. Uh, the United States does matter, and it has mattered for a long time. And, you know, in World War II is such a sort of clear cut example of this. Uh, Germany was a very technologically advanced, wealthy, dynamic society, but just way too small to take on the, the major powers of the world in the way they, they wanted to. And, you know, the United States started well, that war. They tried, to, they tried to change that. <laughs> they, they went for it. No, but you know, you look at right conventional sort of balance of military strength. The United States in 1938, 1939 was was sort of a wimp, uh, but we were a, a huge country, right, with incredible resources at our disposal, and we, we built a military. We we won the war. Um, you know, you look at at the the Cold War. The Soviet Union had a slightly larger population than ours, very slightly, um, but was much poorer. And you know, so they. The claim of the Soviets was that communism was like going to be great and they were going to bury us. And, you know, Khrushchev said that. And there were even some people who took, uh, you know, very literal straight line projections and thought that would happen. Uh, but obviously it didn't happen. And, you know, by the 80s, they had really stalled out and, and the wheels came off that operation eventually. But China is big enough, right? It's about three to four times our population. And so that means that if they could achieve a very modest goal, like half of our per capita income, uh, which they're not at yet, but you know, we, they're closing in on and is, is very easy to achieve. Not easy, but it's, it's very realistic for them to achieve. They will have a much larger uh, domestic market than ours, which already in things like movie tickets, um, you know, they are number one and they exert that influence, right? Chinese censorship impact. American movies is something uh, Pen America did a recent report about. We've seen, you know, NBA players who like to be outspoken about domestic issues in the United States and, you know, good for them. Uh, but they are in fear of saying anything about the situation in China because they saw the backlash to Daryl Morey. It's the financial clout of the Chinese government there is, is very serious. And in terms of military technology, you know, the aggregates matter too, right? As they start to build hypersonic missiles that can take out aircraft craft carriers. Uh, you know, those missiles don't care that on a per capita basis, China is poor. China in the aggregate has the resources to build an increasingly powerful military, to have increasingly sophisticated technology. And something we've seen, right, that, you know, I think 
Donald Trump gets right, one of the few areas where he's had bipartisan support is that the pitch starting in the late 1990s that economic integration between the U.S. and China would export American values to China has proven wrong, that instead the scale of China allows them to export their values into the other countries that have economic ties with them. And I don't think that the only solution to that can be to cut off ties, right, to like ban their video meme apps. We also want to address the underlying source of strength there. And that's fundamentally China's massive scale and America's, you know, we're not small, right? And by design, like we could be, we could have taken a different historical trajectory where we end up like Canada, right? That's sparsely populated, but then America wouldn't be a major world power. We'd be like Canada. And, you know, that would, that would suck. Uh, Because I did, just see the other day that uh, while your book is 1 billion Americans, there is, I guess, recently out a a book by some Canadian author, which is like advocating 100 million Canadians. Maximum Canada from a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Canada, one tenth America, you know. (laughs) Well, you know, you mentioned Canada and and maybe that's a good segue to my question uh, about national security. So Canada is a good example. They've been traditionally an ally of ours. We There's Europe. From a national security perspective, uh, don't we get a lot of the way toward countering China if we sort of go back to having our traditional alliances, our treaty networks mm-hmm. and so forth? Or why? What what's the shortcoming of that approach? Right. I mean, you know, look, uh, this is not a foreign policy book. This is a book about population dynamics and and domestic policy in the United States and how we can be as strong as we can be. Obviously, if you want a comprehensive strategy for dealing with China, allies, alliances are an important part of that. Um, All that being said, like I think allies are great. Um, It's important to have good relationships with other countries. Uh, But the United States, you know, we have worked in partnership with allies traditionally, but we've also been the senior partner in those alliances. And we've been been big enough to be sort of in demand and and the you know, the, the kid everybody wants on their team. Um, and I think that that's important on its own terms. Although to be clear, right, the argument of the book is that a strategy of population growth will be good for America on its own terms. Not that this is like a desperate sacrifice that we have to make because it's the only other option available. Oftentimes, these alliance politics, they're costly, right? So there's value to maintaining the U.S. military presence on the Korean Peninsula. But there's also a cost to it, right? It's a it's a difficult balance. Uh, whereas I don't think that, you know, making sure that Americans can have 2.5 kids, making sure that Americans can build abundant housing, making sure that talented foreigners who want to move here have the chance to do it. Those are not costly measures. Those are things that make us stronger, but they also just benefit us. They make us wealthier. They involve overcoming certain kinds of political obstacles, but political obstacles that once overcome really unlock potential and make us all better off. So when I, I've mentioned this uh, idea of the book uh, to a number of different people, and uh, whenever I mention it to what I will call normal people, mm. uh, you and I are not normal people because we spend our, our time thinking about policy and other, other weird things like that. Mm-hmm. When I talk to normal people, a, a common question that they ask is, uh, well, where are we going to put all these people? Right? Absolutely. And, and I noticed that you have a chapter on that. So <laughs> 
what is the answer? Where are we going? Are we just going to fill up the Grand Canyon? You're going in my garage. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be great. Um, So, you know, there's a number of different ways to look at this, right? My, the number one thing that, that I see in terms of reaction normal people have is that because tripling the population is a big change, uh, people get very um, wary about it. And one of the main things I try to do in the book is instruct people about the quantities involved, uh, that at 1 billion Americans, we would have roughly the population density of France, about half the population density of Germany, much lower population density still than the United Kingdom. Um, so, you know, it's instructive if people are familiar with the United Kingdom uh, to think about it, right, in terms of where will people go. So the UK has one, like, really big city in it, London. Uh, London has a lot of suburbs. There are several secondary cities here and there. They've got some seaside towns that you can go to. Um, you know, they're not, like, tropical resort towns, but they're they're nice. They've got beaches. They've got boardwalks. Uh, you go up north to Scotland, and it's very empty. There's, like, huge stretches of countryside up there. Almost nobody lives there. couple small cities in Scotland. They've got offshore islands. Uh, so it's just to say a country that is not just much denser than the United States, but a country that's much denser than a U.S. of a billion Americans still just has a wide variety of kinds of places. And the one billion Americans America is going to be like that. Like there will be wilderness, there will be farms, there will be suburbs, there will be small towns, there will be really big cities, there will be kind of mid-sized cities. Uh, So where are the people going to go? They're going to go in all kinds of places like that. One of the top things that I think we should do is try to repopulate cities like St. Louis, Buffalo, Rochester, Worcester, uh, St. Paul even, that are all across the sort of northern tier of the country, northern and eastern uh, tier of the country that have lost population, right? We know that Washington, D.C. can have more residents than it does today because it did in the past. Philadelphia, Baltimore, all like that. Uh, the other thing is, I think we want our growing Sunbelt cities to keep growing, right? Um, you know, uh, I, I go to San Antonio fairly frequently because my, my wife's family lives near there. And San Antonio is great. And it's growing a lot. And that's great. Like, they should keep growing. It's an incredible engine of prosperity there. Uh, Nashville, Austin, um, Atlanta places like that, that that have been growing, they should grow. Uh, We've got these coastal places where housing costs have gotten completely out of control, right? New York, Boston, Seattle, San Francisco. We should change those rules so that those cities can grow too. We should look at rural America. Most rural counties have fewer people today than they did 10 or 20 years ago. And the demographic trends in those places are awful. And they're going to turn into retirement communities, right? We don't want to replace rural America with like uh, Manhattan, where I grew up. But what people want out of small towns is like towns that function not towns that are uh, 10 retired people and there are no businesses because there's no workers there. So like the people are going to go everywhere. Yeah. So let me ask about cities because that's a very interesting point. And I recently on Twitter, you had a a series of tweets where you asked, you know, why, why is there a big, huge city where Chicago is? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and various people were dunking on this. I don't know if you know this, Matt, but there are some people on Twitter that don't like you very much. Uh, I don't totally understand it. But, I hate you to know. say it. There's people even in real life who don't like me. <laughs> right. Well, we won't get into that. But um, 
it seemed, uh, I, I, as I saw that tweet, and as I thought about it, it seemed like, uh, actually, there is an interesting question there. So w- what's the deal with where you have a bunch of cities that are growing <laughs> and, and more and more people want to be there? And meanwhile, you've got other cities that seem fine. And mm-hmm. they're, you know, St. Louis, I, th- I think in the book is, I, I don't know how much population they've lost over the last half century or so, but it's a, it's a lot of people. Right. Uh, were the people. So, I mean, what what is the deal there? Why? What's the deal with cities? Yeah, so, I mean, my, my point about Chicago was uh, you can look into the specific history of Chicago and why there came to be such a large city there. And it, it had to do with railroads converging and Great Lakes shipping and slaughterhouses. And, and, you know, every city has its own sort of unique history, particularly older cities, as to like why they were there. Uh, famously, right, the reason we even talk about, right, like it's a cliche, like big coastal cities, quote unquote. And that's because historically they were ports, uh, even though today mostly they aren't. And port cities are these weird specialized places with with giant cranes. But once a city exists, right, there becomes a collection of people who are there. And the people who are there mostly provide services to one another, right? They could be doctors, they could be teachers, they could be cutting hair, they could be cooking meals, they could be building houses, they could be, you know, fixing people's plumbing, like all the things that we do and all the services that we buy, they're primarily local oriented. And when a city is growing, right, when it has the privilege to be a growing place, it then becomes relatively easy to sort of succeed, right? The growth begets more growth because people are going to need more houses. People are going to need more stores to shop in. And even if there's a structural shift away from certain things, right, people do more online shopping. But as long as the population is growing, we don't need the stores to all close down. And it's easy to pay taxes to, you know, keep the lights on, keep the roads repaved because we're going forward. When cities fall into a cycle of growth, uh, of degrowth and, and population loss, life gets very difficult there, right? Because there are fewer people than there used to be, it's really hard to pay old pensions and to keep people uh, going, providing services. You either have to raise taxes or you've got to cut things back. So that makes it a less attractive place to be. Real estate values go from being affordable, which is good, people like affordable, to the situation we have in a lot of Midwestern cities where the buildings are actually worth less money on the market than it would cost to rebuild them. Uh, so when that happens, you know, you have depreciation would be the technical term for it. But if you bother to invest in the upkeep of the structures you own, you lose money on it. So the physical capital starts to rot away. Um, and there's no good opportunities, right? You don't want to open a business in a city where you think there's going to be fewer customers next year than there are this year. So it creates further incentives for this sort of most ambitious, most able people to leave and go elsewhere. And if that happens to one city or two because, you know, they had bad luck or they made some serious policy mistakes, like that's fine. I mean, I'm I'm neoliberal enough to say like we don't need to bail out like every single place that has had a problem. But when you see city after city after city across multiple regions of the country trapped in this same spiral of decline, you have to say, look, there's a kind of a systematic problem there. 
right? And if we can repopulate these places, if we can take advantage of foreigners' desire to move to the United States to stabilize these populations, we're going to create a win-win situation in which we unlock a lot of the latent value in the political and social capital that's embedded in these kind of heartland cities. So in a prior episode... Uh, we had Brian Kaplan on to talk about his book, The Case for Open Borders. Oh, yeah. And so uh, in comparison to him, you are a moderate. Uh, I'm the, the sensible country. moderate to Brian's wild-eyed radical. Yeah, so we can be choosier. So obviously part of part of your plan involves uh, an increase in immigration to the United States. Uh, but what form should that take? What you, you mentioned we, we uh, earlier as part of your pitch that we should be getting high skill people or people who are going to bring jobs or ideas or other things. What I mean, how, how, how do you envision what immigration would look like in order to get us? Uh, sure. So right now, your ability to get a visa, an immigrant visa to come here, depends on a mix of how closely related you are to an existing U.S. citizen and how many other people from the country that you live in want to come here. So it's like it's very strange, right? So if you have like a cousin who's in the US and you are from a, a, a like low application country, right? You're from uh, Slovenia or something. You could probably get in, but a close relative from Mexico uh, would have a very challenging time. And in neither case is the question of like who you are actually really enter into the equation. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of people on the right have said, well, we should switch to a system more like what they do in Canada or Australia, uh, where they sort of assign Find people points based on their job skills, their labor market prospects, their age, other things like that. I personally used to be very skeptical of this. I had a sort of um, knee jerk, you know, I'm a I'm a pretty firm Democrat, and this idea would mostly come from people who I, I think are bad people. But, you know, I looked at it over time and they they persuaded you look at those countries and there is more support for immigration. There's less political backlash to it. And it works out a little bit better economically. America's immigration system works fine economically, in my opinion, but there is public hostility to it. Uh, So if we but the leading proposal in Congress to go to this kind of skill system is very restrictive. The goal of the, it's called the RAISE Act. And the goal of the RAISE Act is to cut legal immigration by 50% and then sort of limit the economic harm of that cut by making sure that we select the immigrants in a smarter way. Uh, But that's the wrong way to think about it, right? If we change the selection process so that immigration is more economically beneficial and more sort of socially uh, workable, then we should take more immigrants. So I don't lay out in the book an exact system of points that I think is optimal, uh, in part because I don't actually think it's that important. Um, You know, I could offer an opinion about what's good and and what's not good. But really, uh, to me, right, if if I was a senator and people were asking me, like, what should we do about this immigration reform? I would just say, like, look, like, I'm voting for anything that increases the number of visas. And, like, I'm willing to make whatever kind of deal you want. If you want to say we're given 17 points to people who are fluent in English, like, that's great. If you don't think English is important, that's also great. I guess my personal guess from having spoken to people and looked at polling is that cultural factors like English language knowledge and possibly, you know, uh, 
it'd be delicate, but sort of picking, quote unquote, the right countries to, to take people in from might matter more than some of the strictly economic stuff like job offer and, and college attainment. Uh, but in general, I think the shape of a better immigration policy is to emphasize people who speak English, emphasize people who are young, and emphasize people who have college degrees and especially technical skills. Uh, Because those are the kinds of people who contribute a lot to Social Security and Medicare and, you know, can sort of integrate easily into bourgeois American communities. The things I think is interesting about that approach is that it it actually signals to would-be Americans in other countries what they need to do to become an American. And I remember we had a, a similar conversation uh, when we had Raihan Salam on the on the show. And I think there actually could be an interesting dynamic that if there's sort of this cottage industry in countries around the world where people are thinking, you know what, I might want to become an American someday. Here are the things I need to do on my list. I need to you know, learn English. I need to you know, become familiar with the U.S. Constitution, whatever these things are, mm-hmm. develop my skill set. It might actually have some benefits in those countries, I would think. Yeah, I mean, this is something uh, Matthew Kahn was was saying today with with regard to the book on on Twitter. And and I think that that's true. I mean, the U.S. does not have strong comparative advantage in primary and secondary education uh, for very, you know, some of that's for policy specific reasons. Some of it's just because America is actually a very rich country. Um, so it's hard to sort of attract and retain uh, a teaching workforce that we need. And, you know, particularly with certain kinds of specialties, right? Like if we say, look, uh, people really need to get their teeth cleaned. Um, and so if we can get foreign, you know, there's some way you can certify abroad to be trained as a dentist or a dental hygienist. Or, or something like that, and then you get a visa, you can come here, right? That's a real incentive for people in middle-income countries to set up education programs that go do that. Uh, if we say, look, we're going to give a lot of weight to achieving English fluency for a young person who wants to come here, that's a real incentive for people in Mexico and, and elsewhere uh, to invest in those skills. And because we know like, people are capable of learning foreign languages, but it's it's hard. Um, you know, I don't know. If, I, I, I have tried in a dilatory way over the years to learn foreign languages. And, you know, I'm terrible at it, right? Uh, But one reason I'm terrible at it is like, how important has it ever really been to me? So it's easy to sort of give up and, and get discouraged. But if you create opportunities where that that really works, right? You look at how, what arduous things people do to try to sneak into the country right now, like how honestly difficult it is. And you see that like, if you made a legal pathway, people would try really hard to get in on that legal pathway. And it could have some broad benefits, I mean, both for the United States and elsewhere. Let me ask about the political aspect here, because course, U.S. society right now is very, very polarized. Uh, A lot of people don't like each other very much. And of course, there are, you know, I think there there are definitely some realistic concerns about if you bring in lots of people from other countries, other cultures, uh, that maybe that exacerbates those sorts of tensions. Mm -hmm. Maybe it, I I mean, in theory, it is also possible that it could alleviate those sorts of things because uh, you know the newcomers just aren't invested in in the natives uh, <laughs> amendments or whatever. Um, uh, I guess that's what happened in Quebec with secession, where there's just so many people from 
Asia now that like what do they care about Quebec secession? Uh, but right, I don't. Well, I mean, politics, you know, happens on two levels, right? So one fear people have on the right is, well, okay, these these immigrants are going to come in here and they're like all going to be Democrats and it's going to swamp us. Um, and, you know, like that's something I hear Republicans say. I don't think it makes a ton of sense. Like in Florida, the local Republican Party, uh, like, does well with the local Latino community. Uh, some of that is like, the nature of the Cuban immigrant experience, but some of it is just like bothered to do it because um, they had to. Uh, obviously, there are conservative political parties in all countries, all everywhere on the planet, uh, because the sort of idea of an alliance between like business interests and sociocultural majority groups just like it has a lot of inherent logic to it. Uh, another thing is about the actual cohesion of America. And here I think that, you know, there could be real benefits, right? That if you look at the kind of most embittered aspects of cultural divides in the United States, you have, you know, you have this kind of MAGA nostalgia politics, which I think, you know, has had a very toxic impact on American culture, but resonates with the, like the idea of greatness resonates with people in an important way. Uh, you also have on the left, right, you have sort of um, left-wing intellectuals who, uh, I don't want to be too caricatured, but like they think America is bad. Right. Like they think the story of America is that it's a it's a bad country and that talking up America is a bad thing. Uh, and you have a segment of the African-American population, which is very disillusioned, very uh, disgruntled, uh, thanks to the unique history of African-Americans in the United States. I think that immigrants usefully dissolve some of those most polarizing kind of cultural issues like immigrants uh, are aware that America for all of its flaws, you know, which are real, but that also like America is pretty good. Like that's that's why people want to come here. This is a pretty good place to live. Um, and immigrants, you know, are not typically immigrants are not like white supremacists. They're not nostalgic. They don't want to go back to how things were in the past. Uh, but they're also not like down on America or convinced that America is evil. Um, and the sort of forward looking immigrant experience is something that, you know, I think is valuable and that like, I want to capture more broadly in the book. And I think it's part of how we sort of go forward as a society that is a diverse society. I mean, not just diverse in ethnic terms, but like our, our lives are very different. Like me in Logan Circle and my in-laws in Kerrville are like, we're doing different things. We're driving different cars. We have different problems, different concerns. But like, we are all also Americans in a real way. And I think that turning inward turns us against each other in a way that's very counterproductive. And looking outward and being open to people from around the world helps us see like what is in common, what's what's nice about America, what do we what do we love about this country, what can we do together, and how can we have disagreements that are disagreements about real things. 
things, right? That are concrete disagreements about like what goes where and how does money get spent and and you know what are our priorities there, rather than sort of endlessly reinscribing like which kinds of people are the good ones. So I've got a question about that, and and I I tend to agree with you, but this seems to be almost you know revisiting sort of gentrification types of arguments because if you're look specifically like it. African-Americans who are, you know, particularly this summer where we have so much racial tensions and we think about African-Americans as being so marginalized. I'm assuming that with both the plans of, you know, uh, growth by increasing the birth rate here and immigration, that on balance, I would assume that African-Americans' share of the population is probably going to be diluted. Have you encountered a lot of pushback from African-Americans on this point that this is going to somehow further marginalize them? I haven't. Um, It's possible that there is a a sense of that. I mean, I think if you look at um, some of the programs I'm proposing, right, African-Americans would very disproportionately benefit from uh, increased support for parents of young children. part just because the African-American population is so much lower income, right? So any sort of basic redistribution like that uh, narrows gaps between between blacks and whites. Uh, also, a lot of you know what we talk about in this book is about housing policy changes, uh, things like that, to facilitate urban growth. In almost every survey I've seen, African-Americans are more supportive of those kind of like YIMBY policies, uh, yes to growth kind of things. I, I also think, you know, obviously we've seen in the Democratic Party, right, if you look at how the 2020 primary outcome uh, went out that, you know, black intellectuals and black voters have just different ideas. I mean, as do people and nobody is so naive to look at a bunch of white American writers and intellectuals and think, aha, that's what white opinion is like, right? Writers and intellectuals are way more left wing than the average white person. Uh, And the same is true of African Americans, right? That black Democrats are actually the anchor of the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, It's people who, you know, uh, feel strongly that the Democratic Party has been the political party that is interested in them, that is their route to political voice and political equality, but actually have a quite diverse range of views on policy and and political ideas, Uh, whereas white Democrats tend to be very left-wing, right? People who have uh, elected to deliberately affiliate with the more left-wing political party, even though most white people are in the Republican Party. Um, So, you know, on on that level, uh, I haven't really seen that. You know, in terms of the demographic balance, of course, it would depend what we choose to do. Uh, One thing that I float, though, is that, you know, when people talk about uh, immigration and sort of cultural integration type concerns, the Anglophone Caribbean, uh, which is obviously primarily inhabited by Black people, is a great opportunity to bring people from the Bahamas, from Jamaica, uh, other countries like that, who are just extremely close cultural fits to the United States and who, uh, you know, historically, a lot of people have come from those those countries to the U.S., oftentimes been very successful here. Um, and that's, I think, like a big sort of resource that we should try to tap. Okay, let's talk about babies then, because this is the other side of the equation. Uh, yeah bringing in people from overseas, but making uh, more Americans here at home. Uh, So what, if anything, 
can government do to affect that? And I think Doug will probably want to ask about the appropriateness of government being involved here. But but maybe the, the, let's start with what can it do? Yeah, uh, you know, it can give people money. Uh, Lyman Stone has looked at this for the Institute for Family Studies a bunch of times. And, you know, um, programs that give extra money to families with children, they don't have like huge impacts on fertility. Like people don't go from having one child to four uh, just because they get a child allowance. But it does make a difference at the margin. Um, and in critically, like, I think that's a program that we should do anyway, right? A, a child allowance program could drastically reduce the child poverty rate, uh, which is a really great thing to do. It also would facilitate people having somewhat more kids. Uh, the other main things that I talk about in the book are sort of not necessarily making school happen year round, which might be a bad idea, but having some kind of provision for what kids do all year round, right? Something those of us who live in places where the public schools are closed right now for the pandemic uh, are acutely aware of is that, you know, school is about education, but school is also about childcare uh, for the kids. And, you know, if we don't want kids in school during the summer months, if we want them I don't know, you know, doing summer campy type stuff like that's fine. Right. But it's a real financial burden, just as it would be a real financial burden to not have schools. And we should think about, you know, do we want some kind of summer enrichment vouchers program? Do we want some kind of city run camps? I mean, wh whatever it could be. I'm not super dogmatic about it, but we're basically just doing nothing right now. Um, you know, is this something that the government should be involved with? I mean, I think there's definitely a libertarian view that like, no, that this is, you know, kids are expensive, just like certain kinds of exotic pets might be expensive. Uh, I think normal people recognize that uh, family life is important and valuable and that the continuity of a uh, nation and its culture is valuable. And it's something that's worth investing in. Uh, I, I was like a philosophy major in college. So you know, I, I know what it would mean to try to have an argument from first principles for this, and I sort of don't have one. Uh, but, you know, I just, I think I think kids are good. I, I like kids. They're cute. Well, I, I think that Josiah just inadvertently, maybe not inadvertently, just threw me under the bus as, as possibly not a normal person. Uh, but, I mean, it seems to me that, that even before, and I'm not dogmatic about the idea of uh, taxpayer-provided child care, but it seems to me that the probably the the first thing you could do for families that would ease their burden is, and it's something I, I obviously, obviously you're in favor of, is more of a YIMBY approach. If you can bring down the cost of housing, uh, that's that that creates a lot of opportunity to for for families to provide for their own health for, for their own you know their own child care and so forth yes i mean i am strongly in favor of that and my dream would have been to find super convincing research that would quantify the impact of housing costs on fertility decisions i did not find it uh, like i i would love to put an exclamation point on like if it was cheaper and easier to get a big house uh, people would get it it's difficult to research because i Obviously, there's an association between uh, like per square foot house prices and how many children people have, but the, the causation goes in both directions there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a big deal. One thing that I think um, is that, you know, most of the sort of YIMBY activist people who I know 
are themselves very left wing. And so they want to talk about affordability, 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 uh, which is fine because affordability is important. But to me, one benefit of Yimby as well is just that like people who aren't struggling economically could just like have bigger houses. Uh, which is nice, right? Like some people mm. move to cheaper Sunbelt cities because they genuinely like, quote unquote, can't afford to live in California. But there's plenty of people who can afford to live in California. They have a house that costs $500,000, which like is a lot. But in California, those $500,000 gets you like a modest house. And they want to move to Texas just so they can have an awesome house, right? Um, and like, that's okay too. Like people are entitled to want awesome stuff. Uh, and I think that that really plays in to sort of family size decisions, things like that. Like, obviously, in a bare subsistence sense, like you can have like six kids in a one room hut somewhere like people do that. But like Americans don't want to do that. Right. People like children, but they also like high living standards. So the ability to get big houses with lots of rooms in them intuitively seems to me like an important variable here. Um, I just, and you know, if somebody out here listening like has that scholarship for me, I would, I would love to hear about it. Hopefully lots of people will buy the book. We'll have, you know, many editions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just, I haven't quite seen the research on it. So to what extent do the events of 2020 pose a problem for your thesis. I'm particularly thinking of the idea of, you know, more density, more cities. Mm -hmm. Seems seems good. You know, historically, cities have been population sinks, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Both because of uh, cost, but also because of disease. Uh, If you had asked me in 2019, I would have said, well, disease is probably not such a big issue anymore. Maybe that's maybe that's going to change. And then, of course, one of the reasons why you saw kind of uh, depopulation of various cities in the United States had to do with crime. Uh, Again, that seemed to be something that we had kind of under control. Maybe now not so much. I don't know. so if you have, and, and I definitely know people, this is maybe not such a longer term issue, but I just had some friends who lived in New York. Uh, they moved last month to Austin uh, because their perspective was, look, everything, all, all the all the neat things about New York, uh, you know, the restaurants and bars and events or whatever, that's all closed. You can't do any of that. So, you know, what's what, what's the point of paying $4,000 for, you know, a month? in rent for like a tiny apartment uh, that you can't leave. So, uh, and, and you know, that that's obviously, hopefully that's not going to be the situation forever, but we may be seeing some longer term structural factors that decrease the appeal of living in big cities like New York or San Francisco or wherever. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm a little skeptical, right? So what people tend to focus on when they do these um, sort of like COVID uh, de-urbanizing, um, anecdote takes is they look at the sort of gross outflows and they talk to those people. Uh, but if you look at New York, right, there's always been a huge number of people leaving New York City. It's even like a joke on the internet, like my why I'm leaving New York essay. Uh, the difference is that normally they're replaced by new people uh, who are coming in, 
right? Right now, you don't have 22-year-old college graduates saying, I'm going to move to New York and like get a job there and have fun in the New York City nightlife uh, because half the city's shut down because of COVID and nobody has jobs and interviews are all happening remotely. And also, if you go, you might never be able to see your parents again. Uh, but I think that's a fairly temporary situation, right? Now, if you have a structural decline in demand um, for San Francisco, say, that probably actually helps in terms of aggregate population growth, because if demand for San Francisco went down, um, just the prices would fall. And so different people would live in San Francisco, right? Like people of more modest means. And that's a more efficient, like national allocation of people. The tendency of high income jobs to cluster in just a couple metro areas, I think is actually a problem for, for the billion Americans uh, sort of agenda. One chapter in the book was about what steps could we take to sort of try to deconcentrate the economy, kind of like Josh Hawley type ideas. I think post-COVID, that may just be less necessary than we had thought pre-COVID. I mean, I don't think we really know what the like long-term future of remote work is. For a while, the conventional wisdom was like the office is never coming back. We're just going to Zoom all the time. Then last week, JP Morgan was like, nope, we want people back in the offices like right now, like no vaccine, pandemic raging. Uh, the, the the middle ground, I, I feel like the wise middle ground is like probably somewhere between there. Uh, but from the standpoint, I'm a city's person. I grew up in New York. I live in D.C. I will find it sad if we like de-agglomerate. And so I resist that conclusion. But from the narrow perspective of like my book's thesis, I think it's easier to get to a billion, the less important it is to cluster in particular spots. Because uh, if people can get good jobs in totally arbitrary locations, then America has a lot space, quote unquote, right? Like th there's no problem. Like you could have, you know, 700 million people could go to Alaska and, you know, we'll be in great shape. So I have a question for you and, and um, I haven't read the book, so you may, you may come right out and explain this, but so what's, what's sort of your timing? If, if you were able to say, I want to have a billion Americans, I'm, I'm sure that doesn't mean tomorrow, hopefully, because it seems like there'd be a lot of growing pains. What's sort of the, the timing that you think think would be necessary to get there and talk about what would be some of the growing pains. I mean, for instance, we talked about 2020 and we have all these wildfires in California. And I think some of it, not entirely, but some of the, you know, the problems with the homes burning is that there's so many homes built right on the force. Mm -hmm. So right by the force. So, so, you know, what are, I guess what on uh, the first question is what's your timing and then what are some of the, some of the obstacles, the challenges? I mean, I think you should think about it as a sort of 80 year time horizon, right? We're, we're, we're raising okay. the growth rate so that by the end of the century, uh, we are at a billion and growing and China is below a billion and shrinking. Uh, that's sort of like their trend, right? So it's, can we, can we bend our curve upward like that? You know, the growing pains, right? Uh, I think, I mean, again, like we don't know what, but like Zoom or Hollow Presence will have. Uh, but I think that the growing pains will primarily be around access to specific places, right? Like you're saying, like in California, there's, there's a mess between the high cost of living in cities, the sprawl into the fire zones. There's also just the question of like, are they managing that woodland appropriately? And the answer is no. Uh, but like one reason why they've been reluctant to do controlled burns is that it impacts the air quality, you know, in the cities by the coasts. Uh, so it's, it's challenging, right? Like they have a lot of challenges there and a more rapid national population growth will 
further stress the places that are already most stressed by growth. Now, by the same token, like the media is always very hung up on New York and San Francisco uh, because those are interesting places. Uh, But like most of the country is not in those situations. Most of the country, I, I should say most, but a larger share of the country is stressed by population decline, right? So we have anti-growing pains in Akron and Toledo um, and Detroit and, and Dearborn and and all those places. Uh, but I think that it's the and, you know, now New York is stressed by, like, maybe people don't want to live there, right? And, and I think, you know, one sort of basic lesson, I mean, this, uh, I think, speaks to both of your employers, is that, like, there's no real upside to um, the kind of policymaking that got New York City into this bottleneck where the infrastructure doesn't work and the housing is incredibly scarce. Uh, Because when people do want to live in New York under those circumstances, it seems really bad because everything is an affordability crisis. And when people don't want to live in New York, it also seems really bad because the infrastructure financing is so tenuous and things seem like they're on the verge of collapse. And there's just like no substitute for addressing uh, your policy needs, your local government needs, uh, like in an appropriate manner. Uh, but that's where the growing pains will be because it's where the growing pains already are. So I have noticed that uh, you you've been you've been doing a lot of promotion for this book. You've been going on a lot of podcasts, including a lot of uh, right wing podcasts, uh, mm-hmm. which is good. Uh, so I was curious uh, first uh, what your favorite podcast has been other than this one. So we don't want to bias it. Uh, <laughs> and then just in general, uh, what is it that you think, uh, you know, what's your, what's your uh, right of center pitch in particular on this issue? Cause I, I know, you know, you're obviously a, uh, a left of center guy, which is which is okay, I guess. It's free country, uh, but you there it does seem like you've been making kind of a concerted effort at outreach on this idea that maybe a lot of folks on the right would be initially skeptical to. So what's why why what's the thinking there? Uh, you know, I, I thought I had a, a really good time on uh, the Realignment podcast that's uh, Sagar and Jetty's uh, show because, uh, you know, he's a conservative person, but a person who's the, the whole premise is to be interested in, in sort of new ideas, new things. Uh, you know, my pitch to the right is that uh, this is a book that like I am a liberal person, I think. Not all, but most of the ideas in the book are probably ideas that are associated with liberals, uh, but that the goals of this book are ones that I think should come very naturally to conservatives. I've gotten the reaction. Uh, so the, the New York Times review of my book, which nobody should read this review because it, it wasn't as positive as it should be. But, you know, it's like Felix Salmon and he's like, oh, well, all these policy ideas are great. But like, well, why did he have to wrap it in this frame about national greatness and like America's place in the world? Um, Whereas I think conservatives, it will be obvious to them why those are important topics. And it's more than just like a quote unquote frame for a book. Like these are actually some of the vital questions is like, where do we go as a nation? Like, does America succeed relative to other countries? How do we achieve and celebrate American greatness? Um, Then I hope conservatives will look at the book, see some of the policy ideas in it are conservative ideas, see some of them are liberal ideas, maybe agree with some of them, and maybe on some of them be like, eh, I see what he's getting at here, but you know, I've got some different thinking on this. I think in general, the right in America 
is strong on principles and core values and a little bit weak on details. Uh, most of the like uh, nerdy academic -y type people just like gravitate to the left for cultural reasons these days. Um, and, and conservatives are not that um, veer between being a little rigid on public policy or like Donald Trump being just kind of like all over the map and not thinking things through. Um, you know, I mean, I think uh, our street, you know, is a real exception to that, I think, is an organization that like has really tried to move the ball forward on policy in a smart way from a conservative perspective. Um, and I think, you know, People who, who who like this show should find a lot to like in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's sort of my basic pitch. In some ways, I found the pitch to the right to be a little bit more natural. And then it becomes about thinking about the specifics. Whereas the pitch to the left, I think the, the premise, uh, some people just don't buy that America should try to be a leader in the world. The book is One Billion Americans. It's available now wherever books are sold. Uh, Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.